Hi, and welcome back to the Utojua Hujui podcast. Now, a quick word before we get in. Your girl, Aileen, has a little bit of a potty mouth, which means she does not mind her language and she speaks the fluent French, <laughs> um, which is all to say that I understand that some people are a little bit uncomfortable with this language. So here's just a warning for you. If, however, you are not uncomfortable and you would like to learn about the world around you and capitalism and colonialism and just like... All this fun shit with a dazzling, brilliant, and funny host, if I do say so myself. Um, keep listening. Hi, ho, hello, and welcome back to the Utajua Hujui podcast with your girl Aileen, the show that allows you to explore hypocrisy in a safe space, but like also explore the legacy and consequences of colonialism. And the reason why I want to do this is because it baffles me that there are people out there who are so determined to deny this legacy and are so determined to try to literally whitewash these consequences like it makes sense right like if i was a white person let's say coming from like the uk or france there are certain things about my history that i would be you know not want to be associated with but nevertheless it is incumbent upon me as that white person to study those things to study the consequences of those things so that they can never happen again because you know they create an entire world order wherein whiteness equals power therefore like like it just baffles me that there are people out there that are trying to deny these consequences that are trying to literally whitewash these consequences in this legacy and like while i understand the impulse it is just weird to, to feel like your entire reality is being gaslit because i cannot imagine what my life what my family's life what my country's trajectory would be without colonialism and neo-colonialism it's, it's just it's just weird that there are people out there that, that, that want to say, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal when it literally defined our global order today. Um, I just, I lack, I, I, I cannot square this circle. And I think that this podcast is like my attempt to fight back, you know, in the only way that I know how, which is using my big ass mouth, <laughs> but also is a way for me to process the consequences of colonialism in my own life. Um, because they do filter down like they are very heavily individualized and it goes beyond the fact that like my family lost our ancestral lands because the british were like nah we want it we're gonna move you somewhere else <laughs> right it's weird um and, and and coming to terms with that loss of autonomy takes generations and i and i still think that if i ever have children but given the state of the economy for who um if i ever have children um they will also have to come to terms with this but anyway um, i went on a bit of a rant which was not the rant i had planned today in fact i even deleted it um but before we dive in you do know what kind of podcast this is so what am i drinking today Today I am drinking a lovely, a guajas, Caricho Gold green tea and mint. Please, Caricho Gold, sponsor me because I have spent so much money on your tea bags. It is honestly disgusting. Um, for like future reference, I have about five bags of Caricho Gold green tea and mint a day, um, five days a week. <laughs> um, so basically I go through a box and a quarter every single week which means that in a month i'm buying five boxes like as an individual not for my family for me five boxes so caricho gold if i am not like one of your highest individual consumers like i don't know who could be so please sponsor me make my 
honest obsession with your tea worth something for me because this is not a fair relationship and i'm starting to feel like i need to stand up for myself <laughs> anyway um so today we're going to be talking about tropical medicine and experimentation in the colonies um this episode was actually supposed to come out on halloween because you know nothing is more terrifying than human experimentation um but then i got busy <laughs> um well specifically i just kind of fell into a bit of a depression and i just could not i just couldn't force myself to record this so i just i just gave myself a break um hint if you're ever going through a deep time in your life like please be kind a dark time in your life i meant to say please be kind to yourself give yourself a break it's okay the world will not end just because you wanted to take a nap it's okay it's fine take a break you deserve it um anyway now the reason why like nothing is more terrifying than human experimentation is because you know number one you could one day be a patient and or victim of these experimentations so like Mm. and also number two some of the ones of the past were quite fucking wacky like we talked about the human ape hybrid one um or the there's another one of my favorite experiments it's called the little albert experiment which is like fucked up so like researchers first introduced a baby to like a small furry white rat um and then like initially the baby was like eh, like what is this thing i don't know what it is so i don't know to be afraid of it so they he wasn't afraid um and then these researchers taught the poor kid to be terrified of the rat i can't remember how they did it i think it involved like a loud noise every time the rat came into the room um and then they they transferred this fear onto like a fear of any animal regardless of its size which is just why would you like i really hope they did something for little albert after this experiment to make sure that he was all right because Ooh, I, I could imagine that this is like not good for him poor baby <laughs> and then of course we've got mk fucking ultra when the cia tried to unlock mind control through lsd and weed ah uh, and the only thing that they unlocked was lsd like i shit you not the cia is why we all know so much about lsd and like why we have like a cultural understanding of what the drug is even if we've never taken it um now this is not to say that like these experiments you know um are always harmful like a really good one would be the covid vaccine ones that happened in, like 2020 2021 where the entire world like came together to stop a literal fucking plague um but more often than not human experimentation in the past and sometimes even in the present tends to be a little um shall we say harmful and fucking painful um for example in one mk ultra experiment um i think someone was kept on varying doses of the purest lsd known to man for over a year like this man was tripping balls for over a year just like every fucking oh like oh mm, nothing about that seems fun nothing because like eventually you need a break you need you need a break so that you can come back to reality but my hey and like i don't want to confuse this with something called microdosing by its very name microdosing means like a very consistent very small amount of lsd so that like you're not tripping balls but like something is unlocked right like nah the cia actively kept somebody not somebody several somebodies on lsd on varying amounts of lsd tripping the 
fuck out for over a year in fact like there's a story of a guy called whitley bulger um he was arrested for his crimes like in the mafia and he was put in a prison um and while he was in prison the cia tested massive amounts of lsd on him um but they didn't tell him what they were giving him and then to make it worse um here's here, here's what he experienced he said and i quote uh, a total loss of appetite hallucinating the room would change shape hours of paranoia and feeling violent guys turning into skeletons in front of me i saw a camera change into the head of a dog end quote so yeah human experimentation is to say the least interesting um slash a hit or miss um but it, it gets somewhat more fucked up when that history intersects with colonialism for no other reason than that this intersection of like human experimentation and like who is worthy of being experimented on um when it starts to mingle with colonialism creates a racial hierarchy that suggests that like african bodies are the only ones that can be you know um subjected to human experimentation like it's, it's part of the reason why French doctors in 2020 were saying that, you know, the COVID vaccine should first be treated in Africa before being dis- dispensed in Europe. Like, like there's a there's a reason why they thought they were right to think that. And today we're going to we're going to talk about that reason. Um, so and it really begins with tropical medicine. So the term tropical medicine, like, doesn't really make sense. Um, when we think about, like, the different types of medicine, we think about, like, body parts or diseases. Um, for example, oncology is the study of cancer pediatrics is the medicine of like children which you know have like a very like theirs is a very specific time of their life so they need very specialized medicine um uh, uh, but tropical medicine is not like any of these because it's not the study of a disease or treatment associated with a particular stage of life or body part tropical medicine is the study of diseases coming from a very particular region aka the tropics like asia latin america and Africa. Tropical medicine focused on diseases and illnesses that affected people living in the tropics, like tuberculosis, malaria, and dengue fever. And by the way, dengue fever is not a fucking joke. Wah! Anyway, um, however, the original purpose of tropical medicine concerned itself with the impact of these diseases on white settlers to the extent that something called to, to the extent that heat stroke was classified as a tropical disease in like the early 20th century, when like it's not really a disease as much as it is a, a just a condition. Again, I, I am not a doctor. I am barely even a lawyer. <laughs> I am just a person with enough free time on their hands to be doing this. So please take everything I'm saying with a grain of, grain of salt. Please go check my resources. Um, yeah, anyway. Now, like, I'm going to rush over a bunch of stuff just so I can get to this point. One of the things that tropical medicine did was reinforce and in many cases create the connection between horrific diseases and savage African practices. This is important because savage means different. Different means the same standards don't have to apply, which then opens a door for human experimentation in very unethical ways. Um, And you can see this in the literature with like a lot of the scholars of the past using terms like darkest Africa, teeming Asia, like phrases that imply dangerous places. And and like the, the, the most incredible one is the white man's grave. Like, like son, fair, but like Jesus. <laughs> Black people were dying there too. It's not just for you. <laughs> um, returning to, uh, in fact, I want to I quote from a person called Gibson. Let me see if I can get their first name. Yes, Andrew Gibson. He says, and I quote, 
A sense of the danger of the tropics could be shifted from the danger of the space to the danger of the germ arising from the practices of native people as a whole. In The Wretched of the Earth, Franz Fanon pointed to the way in which the colonial world is divided simply into newcomers and natives, where the latter is portrayed as a sort of quintessential evil. Medicine was part of the social division of the colony. Fanon notes that the broad images of native and moral cultural depravity contained and paralleled medical discourses, writing, the recession of yellow fever and the advance of evangelization form part of the same balance sheet, end quote. All this is to say is that when white people started coming through, they started, like, in their minds, dividing um, the, the world into, like, Af- the new world, any- anyway, into newcomers and into natives. And because they were the ones with, like, pen and paper, like, their, like, their conceptualization of the world stuck. And with time, they began to see the natives as some sort of, like, quintessential evil that they were obliged to fix hashtag white man's burden and medicine became a really important part in this fixing process um to the point where like and, and we'll get to, into this later to the point where like human or other african bodies as is the subject of our podcast today were seen as just uh resources as as biological matter to be as insensitive about it as possible um in, in part of this um, um evangelizing saving mission you know um so this medicine, or the tropical medicine, as I said, was used to justify the inherent filthiness of people, and then it was then used to justify segregation. Um, well, not quite segregation as much as it was like moving the white people to a place with open air so that you know they could have nice clean airs, but then at the same time moving the locals slash native people into ever smaller and smaller and smaller places and then being shocked that there are high rates of disease. Like, it just doesn't make um, sense. Um, But like, as I said, another consequence of the connecting of the horrific diseases to savage and native practices is that it confirms this idea that like the natives were not human, at least not human like us. And therefore, if they're not human, then they could be something else test subjects. In 1955, Honor Smith, a senior doctor at Oxford University, pointed out with disgusting enthusiasm how willing Europeans were to treat Africans as available, unproblematic test subjects. He said, and I quote, it is the almost unlimited field that Africa offers for clinical research that I find so enthralling. Problems of the first interest abound and clinical material is unlimited, end quote. And by clinical material, he's of course referring to the African bodies that would become test subjects. Let me take a sip first. Okay, and I'm back. So, for much of colonial Africa, there was no agreed upon ethics for human subjects research, which makes this conversation a little bit harder because, like, yes, um, figuring out what is right and what is wrong they they didn't have that discussion yet. So like to judge them on what we know now and what we have agreed upon now is a bit unfair. But equally, we should hold them accountable for the racial hierarchies that led them to make the decision that African bodies were right, were the perfect human test subjects and how that decision mutated to the present to lead a doctor in 20 fucking 20 to argue that COVID vaccines should be tested on Africans exclusively and first. Like... You, we need to we need to be able to understand and differentiate between those two things. Um, 
But like, although the absence of these controls was not endemic to Africa, um, the open-ended conditions created an ethos where the ends justified the means. In essence, Africa existed in the minds of some just to serve the West. And while of course, like not every single doctor or medical researcher or researcher or what have you had this thought, they still existed in a system or structure that gave them I don't know how to explain this. Like, not everyone was was that big of a dick as to assume that Africa existed in the minds of the West, yes. Um, but they this was still the ocean that they swam in. And so you couldn't, you can't, you can't imagine that, like, that didn't have an effect on how they thought and how they did their science. Um, we are, after all, a byproduct of our environment, as well as our, like, our genes and our parents and everything. Um, so, but before we get to the experiment that I do want to talk about, which involves Germany, like... <laughs> um, it involves Germany in Tanzania, or what they call German East Africa. Um, but first, before we get there, we need to talk about why Africa was treated as a living lab, or a laboratory. Will you just get out of my laboratory? Reason number one is racism, of course. <laughs> um, but I want to put that aside for a minute and focus on something else, and that is like Africa's isolation. Um, Africa was treated as a lab because it was so isolated from everyone, which made it a very interesting ground for experiments, like the impact of diets or the efficacy of medical intervention, because you were basically starting from zero in the minds of these Europeans, which means that you could almost guarantee that any results you were getting were the results of your intervention or the experiment. You didn't have to control for things, um, at least the things that the European scientists ought to have controlled for were not things that they really cared about, like things like our cultures, our values, and you know, the impact of colonialism. <laughs> Um, quoting now from Helen Tilly, and I quote, um, Africa's relative isolation had created conditions not unlike those one might engineer in a lab, and they ought to be studied as such. An enormous amount may be learned by simply collecting the results of these experiments. Collecting results, however, proved to be far more complex than supporters of research imagined, especially given that many field scientists had an incomplete understanding, if at all, of the socio socioeconomic effects of colonialism itself. And the reason why this understanding was particularly important was because the colonialism made the diseases they were studying so much worse. Like, oh, like, they, they were making the diseases worse. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, in essence, colon colonization is an incredibly disruptive process. It changes everything about the area, the land, the people, the culture, the governance structures, the relationship between all these things, the food, everything changes because of colonialism. And this can impact how frequently, when, and where diseases infect humans. Co quoting from Helen Tilly, and I quote, Conquest was violent and disruptive, radically altering landscapes and lives, and producing what medical spe specialist Patrick Manson aptly referred to in 1902 as a pathological revolution in tropical Africa. Manson had in mind an ongoing pandemic of sleeping sickness, a disease transmitted by tsetse flies and fatal to humans unless treated, that had recently broken out in the territories including Lake Victoria, the Congo, Uganda, the Sudan and Tanzania. The flies' habitats had been transformed in the previous decades because of colonization, bringing tsetse's into closer proximity to humans and distancing them from some of the animals, especially cattle, on which they normally fed. 
Thus, in at least some regions, people became a convenient meal for the flies, increasing transmission rates and spreading the epidemic to new areas, end quote. What this seems to suggest to me is that like while Europeans thought that they were studying like these diseases in their natural habitat, what they were really studying are these diseases after they have been impacted by colonialism. It's 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 and, and it's weird that like they didn't make it's both weird but also pretty pretty on brand for them to not have made that connection. Um but you know, they were partly to blame for how these diseases just kept spreading and spreading and spreading. Um in short, colonization changed the land and our relationship to it, eroding the balances that had kept the rate of disease bad, but not, oh dear God, 90% of the population has died bad. Um, some Europeans were aware of this. Like in 1920, a doctor touring the Belgian Congo connected the dots, which is ironic because like you're a doctor touring the Belgian Congo, which has peak colonizer energy. Anyway, this mandem said, and I quote, the principal cause of depopulation in the Congo is the European penetration itself, end quote. He then talks about the increasing rates of diseases, infertility, and migration, and adds, and I quote, since all of these causes of ill health increase more and more as the economic, commercial, and industrial development of the colony increases, the depopulation becomes equally more and more threatening, end quote. And I mean, that last part is just peak colonizer energy and we would expect nothing less from the belgians the reason i'm saying this is that immediately after noting how destructive the the the, the impact of european colonization is on the native people you then flip it around and talk about how this destruction hurts you this kind of reminds me of a situation where like if somebody punches you and then like as you are nursing a broken nose they are complaining that you got your blood on their knuckles and they're mad about it and you're like i'm sorry who here has been hurt clearly not the person who has blood on their knuckles because they punched me in the fucking face you dickhead um anyway all this is to say is that Yes, Africa's isolation was uh, like basically created like perfect in perfect uh, experiment conditions, but the Europeans' unwillingness or reluctance to study the impact of colonialism itself led to experiments that were ultimately moot because colonialism was changing the very diseases they came here to study in real time, and they were not accounting for these changes in real time. At this point, we now want to like racism will re-enter the chat not that this bitch ever left because that is the primary reason why africa was treated as a lab the people in charge just like did not consider african bodies to hold value beyond their capacity for extraction as noted by that belgian doctor himself this perspective which paints african bodies as just yet another resource to be exploited also justified many doctors researchers medical interns what have you decision to treat africans as a living lab not just the their home but their bodies as well and test new and often dangerous medicines on africans now i'll be fair to the europeans sorry, european colonizers um because um, they were also testing dangerous medicines out on themselves. Like, we all know that in the <laughs> late 19th century, opium, cocaine, heroin, like, this shit was just given out like fucking candy. <laughs> like, people had real problems. See, Sherlock Holmes had a bit of a... a wasn't Sherlock Holmes addicted to opium or something? Um, 
Returning to Tilly, and I quote, standard medical practice in Britain in this period routinely involved the use of new substances and variations in their dosage and methods of administration. We have observed similar patterns with German and French investigators who blurred the lines between therapeutic and human experiment and were willing to try dangerous drugs not just on their patients, but on each other, end quote. But you can also admit that like peak colonizer energy is is what took this practice and turned it up to an 11 because around the scramble for africa a lot of europeans were becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the random nature in which drugs seemed to be dismissed i'm sorry just dispensed to people and like wanted like proper scientific proper wanted proper scientific experiments just like not on european bodies because everyone was just like no that's that that's that's kind of wrong um but like peak colonizer energy is what took this practice and exported it to the Africans. Um, and you, this is particularly clear when you consider a disease called sleeping sickness. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about what sleeping sickness is, because I have a feeling many of us are thinking, well, what's so wrong with sleeping sickness? Like, if it just means you get to take an extra nap every now and again, then it's fine. Like, we all need sleep, you know? Um, but it's, it's actually far worse. Like, sleeping sickness will kill you if it's left untreated. So... What exactly is sleeping sickness? Sleeping sickness is a parasitic disease passed to humans by the setse flies. Once infected, a person with sleeping sickness will have swollen lymph nodes, which look like big ass boils underneath your skin on the sides of your neck. Like, like, like you know, whenever you get like sw- uh, swollen tonsils, if you feel your throat, they can feel like 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 lumps and like it's swollen. Like, yeah, lymph. Those those, those are your lymph nodes. Um, sleeping sickness can develop within a matter of weeks or years, depending on which parasite caused the infection. They will develop joint pain, headaches, fevers, paranoia, and eventually drowsiness and lethargy. There have even been accounts of people with sleeping sickness attacking family members, experiencing scary hallucinations, and screaming with pain when coming into contact with water. This is according to the New York Times. Now, about two of these symptoms, specifically drowsiness and lethargy, it's not that you sleep all day, um, but that when you sleep, it's not like a nap, like you are deep sleeping. I'm talking about the kind of sleep you take after your parents take you swimming all day and you've eaten chips and sausage and soda and you've gotten home and you're just like passing out in your bed kind of sleep. Um, Once this symptom is apparent, a patient goes into a coma. And like I said, if left untreated, sleeping sickness will kill you. Today, over 80% of these cases of sleeping sickness were reported in in impoverished and rural sub-Saharan Africa. And because the disease mostly affects poor populations living in remote rural areas of Africa, it is considered a neglected tropical disease, simply because it's not really affecting where the white people are, so not a lot of money goes into sleeping sickness compared to something like malaria or tuberculosis um, or cholera, I think is also a tropical disease. Um, Anyhow, Z, sleeping sickness has two stages. The first is when it's in your blood. That's when you get swollen lymph nodes, the joint pains, the fevers, as your body tries to yeet the virus from within itself. The second stage is when it gets to your brain. That's when you develop paranoia, lethargy, drowsiness, and eventually death. Um, And pre-colonial Africans were aware of how deadly this virus is. They also knew how it could be transmitted through tsetse flies and had developed ways around managing this disease for for, for themselves. Quoting from Daniel R. Hedrick and Philip Boucher, yeah, Boucher, and I quote, 
Africans before the colonial era had established a rough equilibrium between two ecosystems, the human and domestic on one hand and the natural and wild on the other. Africans whose ancestors had lived on that continent for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, knew the habitats of tsetse flies and how to avoid them. This equilibrium was shattered by the invading Europeans, causing a series of ecological crises, including famines, epidemics of rinderpest, sleeping sickness, jiggers, and other. End quote. This led to a decimation of the local populations and an erosion of the communities that made colonization a lot easier for the British and literally any, any colonizer. This was recognized by British imperialist Lord Lugard. He remarked, and I quote, powerful and warlike as the pastoral tribes are, their pride has been humbled and our progress facilitated by this awful visitation. The advent of the white man had not been so peaceful. Unquote. Although Lord Lugard was talking about Rinderpest, the impact of sleeping, cells, sleeping sickness was just as devastating. So when the sleeping sickness um, epidemic hit in the early 20th century, think 1900s, 1910s, the Europeans felt obliged to do something about it. One, because some of them recognized that, hey, this, this, is, this, this might be our fault. I don't know, just saying might be. Two, they also recognized that, like, if we are losing a lot of people that we need to extract the wealth, um, so that's bad. Uh, we need these people to, you know, basically slave away for us. So that's not good. Um, and three, because some Europeans also recognize that like all human life is equally valuable or somewhat valuable, um, kind of very Orwellian in the sense of all animals are equal, but some animals more equal than others kind of vibe. Um, and they chose one of two approaches to deal with this epidemic and disaster. The first is a scientific approach, and the second is the environmental approach. Today, we are talking about the Germans, who chose the scientific approach in East German and German East Africa, I meant to say. Um, after sleeping sickness was first reported in Tanzania in 1902, the German colonial office prepared an expedition to figure out what the fuck was just going on. By 1906, the expedition was ready to go, and it was headed by a man called Robert Koch. Koch? I'm gonna say Koch. I don't feel comfortable saying Koch. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm a. I'll stick with Koch. Um, he was a German physician who won the Nobel Prize for his medicine for his research on TB in 1905. Fun fact, um, he was the deciding vote on the 1902 Nobel Prize for Medicine, and it was supposed to go to one of two guys who discovered how malaria was transmitted, but the committee was divided and Koch was invited to come make, the, make this decision. And he chose the guy who was nice to him over the guy who had criticized his research. Like, it like that is all I've been able to find about how he's how he made or came to this decision. It's unclear if he based it on the quality of the research itself or on the fact of like one of these guys just happened to be a lot nicer to him. Um, anyway, back to 1906. So May 1906, Koch arrives in Tanzania with a single goal: I am going to cure sleeping sickness. Now. By the time the Koch had arrived in Tanzania, German pharmaceutical companies had several medicines that they thought would cure sleeping sickness. They first tested these treatments on animals, but even then scientists understood that animal testing was unreliable. It didn't perfectly map onto human experiences, which meant that you were not entirely sure if it will work or what the side effects will be. Um, there was just one tiny, insy, little bit problem 
Um, medical experimentation on German people was a big old no-no. People would have been pissed. But Africa was another situation. Remember, Africa and her people had been dominated, which meant that no important person really objected to human testing. I mean, unless you are planning to breed or uh, breed a human ape hybrid without the consent of African women, even even white people recognized that was fucked up. But generally, they were like, eh, it's okay. Um, so when Coach came to Africa, he explicitly came to test these potentially deadly treatments on African bodies. When he landed, he immediately set up the Bungula, so the Bugula Sleeping Sickness Research Camp. He tested, and I hope the air quotes are clear, up to a thousand people a day with a toxil and other untreated, untested treatments. Now, a toxil had... Is, ba- is based in arsenic and arsenic is deadly and we will get to the consequences of this of this treatments later on now we don't know how many people coach treated in total we don't know if they were provided with a chance to consent and i mean proper informed consent where you are told not only what the drug is but what it is for how it will impact you in as neutral a way as possible as to not sway your opinion so that you can make an informed decision we just don't know and it would be very unfair of me to conclude that he didn't provide um his test subjects with a chance to consent even though i really want to but i won't because it's, we just don't know um as i said coach was testing a toxil and a toxil is an arsenic based medicine that does not cure sleeping sickness but people didn't know that then hence the experiments but they did know that arsenic was fucking deadly in any quantity and it, it baffles me that you would make a medicine based off arsenic even though you know arsenic is deadly um did you think that in reducing the amount of arsenic in this medicine, it would be less deadly? That's not how... I, I mean, there are certain things, there are certain deadly uh, tem- chemicals that in small quantities can be quite helpful. But like, not arsenic. People knew then that arsenic was deadly. So like, what was going on here? And to make it worse, Coach was not only testing a uh, medicine based on a deadly substance he was also varying the dosage at each time and i understand that like you need to vary the dosage to know what works and what doesn't work like i get it but the way he was doing it almost seemed random quoting from wolfgang u eckhart and i quote coaches injections were not done the way clinicians used to administer arsenicals i.e in slowly increasing doses instead he subcutaneously administered 0.5 grams each time and specified intervals over less than two days for reference less than an eighth of a teaspoon of arsenic can be fatal to a to a healthy adult Coach was out here giving people close to four times that much every two days. How are you? How are you surprised that people died? Like, of course they were gonna die. Anyway, um, other side effects of of giving people arsenic included a twenty percent chance of blindness and just a hundred percent chance of pain. Oh, and to add the cherry on top of the sundae, sometimes he used unsterilized needles and sometimes he reused needles, which was just just great um so painful was this treatment that sarah lowes and eduardo montero recall a song that was sung by the eton ethnic group from central cameroon now the germans weren't conducting experiments in uh central cameroon it was the french but the french were also testing out a toxo um and the the song basically goes like this um the lyrics are and i quote 
The injection against sleeping sickness was too painful. The injection against sleeping sickness was too painful. They gave me an injection in the head. They gave me an injection in the neck. They gave me an injection in the back. They go I asked me to go draw water from the well. If I drag my feet, the policeman hit me on the head. The injection against sleeping sickness was too painful. End quote. So painful were these tests that one scholar remarked that, and I quote, a chemotherapy with lasting effectivity, or in my words, good-ass medicine, was not found. Instead, the toxicity of the tested substances, in other words, the of the unwanted side effects of painful injections, was clearly proven, end quote. But simply, atoxyl didn't work. All it caused was pain and misery. But if it's any consolations, the doctors got really good at diagnosing the disease, which is really important because if you're going to fight a disease, you kind of need to know what you're fighting so that you know what kind of tools to bring. Like, you don't want to bring a slap to a gunfight. You are not Iron Fist or the Flash. Um, and you kind of, we all saw this in action at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, in 2020, when COVID was being diagnosed and it was spreading, we were really struggling to get testing kits. We did not have the diagnostic capabilities to, to see how many people had COVID, which meant we didn't know what we were fighting. Um, we, 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 we really struggled with this. And, and now, compared, like, you know, 2022, you can get a COVID test like this. Um, it'll take you like 24 hours to get results, where before it used to take you like a week you know um we've gotten really good at it so like and as a result of these of having these diagnostic capabilities it became a lot easier for us to treat covid and i'm hoping that that's what happened with the sleeping sickness again i'm trying to be as fair as possible um now we're just gonna to make things worse on top of using an arsenic based medicine that you know not only killed you but would also give the test subjects a 20 percent chance of blindness um to make things worse, by the time Coach returned to Germany, he had established concentration camps to treat this disease. Not one, but three. And by the way, concentration camps is his word, not mine. He called them concentration camps and everything was missing from these camps. Blankets, clean water, food and like the only food that they would serve was flour and salt. And flour and salt is not food. It is barely the makings of bread. I'm quoting now from Edna Bonholm, and I quote, According to Pittsburgh University historian Mary K. Webble, at the Bungula camp established by Coach himself, test subjects were made to wear wooden identification tags around their necks or wrists and subjected to a series of dehumanizing experiments. Their eyes, ears, and limbs were regularly punctured with needles in an effort to extract what scientists called kraken material, or sick material, from their bodies. This data was collected and eventually shared with British officials who were also trying to tackle sleeping sickness outbreaks in their colonies, end quote. Now, there was a fucked up reason why Coach chose or preferred concentration camps. Quoting once more from Wolfgang, they were called concentration camps in order to carry out a human experiments in a situation that made escape impossible. And a doctor once put it this way, we are not so concerned with the increasing number of survivors as we want to see how the dose of medication has to be designed so that it is the most tolerable and fewer people die in the process, end quote. So yeah, he recommended, and then when he went back to Germany, Coach um, not only recommended Atoxyl, even though his, his experiments showed that it didn't work, he also then recommended concentration camps. And I guess the idea stuck because... Roughly 30-ish years later, they came on right back a-swinging. Honestly. 
So at this point, Coach, 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 Coach has tested out an arsenic-based medicine that does not work, and he knows it doesn't work. He then has established three concentration camps in German East Africa. And when he left in 1907, he recommended both of these things as part of the recommended treatment for treating sleeping sickness. Even though the drug he was recommending just didn't work. So like you have to wonder who was benefiting from this, right? Because like if it was supposed to be the Africans that were benefiting from this, why put them in a concentration camp without food, water, or like a clean environment that would make rates of infection so much worse? I, not nothing about this is adding up. It just it seems so haphazard that if it was about uh, helping make Africans get better, you, they were, you this was so lazy. <laughs> I I lack the words. Um, this experience more often than not just solidified the idea that Africa is and ought to be a testing ground for new medicines. And we see this permeate in the modern age when French doctors asked for COVID vaccines to be tested in Africa first and then before being deployed in Europe. Anyway, today sleeping sickness is treated with a variety of drugs that change depending on what stage of the sickness you're at. As I said, there are two stages. Only one drug called fexinidazole can be used in both stages of the sickness. In 2009, the number of reported cases dropped below 10,000 for the first time in 50 years. And in 2019, there were 992 cases reported. And in 2020, it was even lower with 663 cases. Um, obviously, COVID um, impacted the treatment of this disease because all of the resources we had in medicine went towards stopping the literal fucking plague. But in 2021, um, governments renewed themselves to the cause. Um, in fact, there was a public-private partnership that the World Health Organization renewed with two, pharmaceutical, with two pharmaceutical companies that would provide support to countries with, countries with epidemics and medicine free of charge. Um, but as we are now in the process of eradicating sleeping sickness, we did not fix the hierarchies that continue to argue that Africa should be a testing ground for deadly medical experiments. So now <clears throat> we do need to answer one last question before we go. And that question is, was it worth it? Was the pain inflicted on the patients in Koch's experiments worth it? Now, I'm not entirely sure I can answer this one because I was not a victim of this experiment, and I worry that any attempt to answer yes or no would be me speaking for them. But as a general rule, this is a tricky question to answer because it goes to something deeper about medicine. If one person's suffering can unlock a million people's salvation, is it worth it? If, if there's even that chance, like it's not guaranteed, but like, like, there's, a, there's a shot that one person's suffering can unlock a million people's salvation, is it worth it? Now, some people would say yes, a million trumps one. But to those people, I ask, what if you were the one suffering? Would you be willing to make that sacrifice to endure an untold amount of pain? Um, and now for those who say no, I would ask, what about the million? Um, how do we save them if this is the only way? And I think this is where medicine and like medicinal ethics um, or ethical medicine has has really been growing as a field because the part of the way to answer or try to resolve this dilemma, because it is an ethical problem, is to try to give the person who would be making that massive sacrifice as much information as possible as to what they may or may not endure so that they know going into this experience what it is they're getting themselves into, um, which helps not necessarily alleviate the material fact of the suffering, but the fact that you've chosen it and you know what you were getting yourself into does 
limit the moral culpability of the people involved um so it's not really and 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 also the fact that it's a choice that you're making does make it somewhat better i suppose um as yeah because i'd always much rather have a choice um but i'd also like to note that this conversation is complicated by questions of race like if you were the if you were the one who is always called to sacrifice for the greater good that you rarely ever see would you be willing to sacrifice your life and comfort once more and to this i'm talking about the tuskegee syphilis experiments that that, that were ongoing in the u.s um um that started that that told black uh, people that they were getting treatment for syphilis but really did nothing for them. Um, I'm talking about the experiments that happened in the Congo. I'm talking about the experiments that also happened in Kenya. Like, every single time, why is it that African bodies and African peoples are asked to sacrifice so that other people can benefit? Or do you say, fuck you, it's your turn to suffer while I hoard the benefits? I mean, I don't know what side of this because clearly that I don't know what side of the line I fall on this because clearly that second response doesn't resolve the issue of the unfairness. It just does an eye for an eye, which isn't fair as much as it is equal, right? Um, and I think that's where I'm going to leave it for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will see y'all next time. Bye! Thank you so much for listening to the Utajuo Hujui podcast. I really appreciate you giving me your time of day. I know that your time is very valuable. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at utajuahujui.pod. That is at U-T-A-J-U-A-H-U-J-U-I dot P-O-D on Instagram. Please don't forget to like, share, review, do all the nice things. I could really use the boost. Okay, enjoy the rest of your time on this planet. Goodbye.